pod going up on a Tuesday. That was horrible. Anyway, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hugely appreciate it. Hopefully your Tuesday or whenever you're listening to this is getting off to a great start or finish. Again, it totally depends on when you're listening to this. I wanted to call attention to the fact that we had a few audio quality issues throughout this episode. The occasional door opening, door slamming, uh, police siren, dog barking, nothing too far out of the ordinary. You may not even notice it, but if you do, just, you know, it's it's temporary and play through. Just play through. Anyway, um, this was a great interview with Mickey from Saba's, and I hope you enjoy it. So that's that. That's all I had to say. All right. Thank you. Bye. I had a shipment that was supposed to be there four weeks from now, and they would arrive 16 weeks later. They got stuck in customs for eight weeks. You know, so we, we, you know, we had a lot of people that were making shoes for on a promise and an expectation and learning how to manage that and, um, and storytell around it was very important. Welcome, everybody, to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I'm a venture capitalist at Draper Associates. But on this show, we're going to be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we have Mickey Ashmore, founder and CEO of Saba's. Mickey teaches us about the value of an in-person buying experience and the significance of brand values. So today we have a terrific guest, uh, Mickey Ashmore, founder and CEO of Saba's, um, a product near and dear to my heart and my feet. Mickey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Billy. I'm happy to be here, especially given your customer and, and our relationship started in that way. It's, it's nice to talk. So to start, give us the story behind Saba's. Sure. So we um, we produce our shoes all by hand in Turkey. We make them in a town called Gaziantep, which is down along the Syrian border. Uh, I uh, lived in Istanbul from 2010 to 2012. I was there working for Microsoft, so nothing related to shoes. Uh, and while there, I had a friend that was from uh, from this town, Gaziantep, and her grandmother gifted me a pair of traditional Turkish slippers that are produced in the same way, using the same construction on our shoes, but with a much more, I like to say, genius kind of uh, much more oriental looks and a curl tone along and a pattern on the top and um, not as high quality of leathers. And I, um, I got this pair gifted to me and I loved them and wore them every day, all the time. I'd even wear them with tuxedos, to wear them once with a, to a, tux, with a tuxedo to a pretty fancy wedding in Turkey. The irony being that um, Turks don't really wear this traditional shoe anymore, uh, so it's, it was really a relic of the past and something you didn't see in modern wear. Anyway, uh, a few months after getting these shoes and wearing them all around Turkey, I moved back to New York, and the streets of New York destroyed the shoes. And um, and, it, and regardless, I just wanted a more modern-looking pair, so I was put in touch with the family that made them, uh, which resided in this town, Gaziantep, and asked asked the owner of the workshop to make me a new pair. And at this time, it was just a few men in a workshop. They've been in the business. I didn't know this at all, but but you know they've been in the business since the 1880s. And I said, "Can you make me a new pair of these shoes?" But I have a few ideas. And suggested some changes to the design, so no more curly toe, no pattern on the top. I sent them a really nice pair of a uh, really nice, excuse me, really nice hide of black leather, 
and then asked him to glue rubber onto the sole. The shoe traditionally they use um it's a naturally tanned water buffalo sole, so that's what you step on, and that's the foundation of the shoe. And, and we still use that, and it, it's it's one of the things that makes them so great. But instead of that being what contacts the ground, we glued a piece of natural rubber on the bottom. It's replaceable. So I had to make me this black pair. Sent them to my office in New York. I was working at a private equity fund at that time in the city. They felt they fit perfect from the start, so I had to make a, bl- a blue pair and a red pair, and started gifting pairs of friends and. One day I called them and said, hey, can you just can you send me like 150 of those um, and stamp this brand Saba inside? So I came up with the idea of the brand Saba, just really a name at that time. Uh, and he sent me a bunch of pairs to my house. And I proceeded to turn my house into a little shop and, and threw a big party on a Tuesday night. You know, our brand is a lot about hospitality and bringing people together and sort of a, an old world approach to selling, which is quite, which is ironically quite novel today. Um, and through a party, sold a bunch of shoes. And then every weekend I would open up my house and I'd, I'd have something I called Saba Saturday or Saba Sunday and host people and sell shoes. Um, and then I went to visit Orhan, the maker, and kept making shoes with him. And after a few months of this, after that first summer, um, made more money selling shoes and working in this finance job and really enjoyed myself. So I quit and just dived, uh, dive right into it. And what's the timeline? So, so between you getting gifted that first pair of shoes and then you ordering 150 pairs and then you quitting your job? So I, I got my first pair December of 2012, um, had a few more pairs made through that spring. And then I, I placed the order for 150 pairs like in April and it took them almost two months to make them all because it was a really small workshop. Um, and then through that event in June, and I was uh, I quit my job August first, so it was pretty quick. I was pretty fed up with my job. I was looking for something else to do. It's probably not uh, um, the smartest move uh, from a risk perspective if you looked at it really analytically, but it felt good emotionally. But so, the hindsight is is twenty twenty, and it looks like it's worked out pretty well for you so far. And you mentioned the and you mentioned that you came up with the name Saba, and immediately on your first order of one hundred fifty. You wanted them to stamp Saba in it. How did you come up with the name? What is the name? What is the meaning of the name? Um, you know, how did how did that come about? Saba is a Turkish word. It's also an Arabic word, and it means the morning time in Turkish. So, like the you know, like the, just the morning. Um, and it has no relation to shoes or that type of shoe. I just love the word. My best friend had made a comment. I remember we sitting in Washington Square Park, and he said, "You should call you should call them morning shoes." What's that in Turkish? I said Saba, and I like the idea of it of the brand and the product being the same. So Saba, you wear your Sabas and just keeping it really simple. And I thought the word had a nice, a nice touch to it. It was something that um, people could say no matter where they were from, but it was still uh, unique and uh, touched on the heritage of the shoes. And the brand itself is different from, from most of the companies that we talked to from what I can tell, or from what I know from you, um, Saba is just as much a sort of lifestyle or an experience or uh, or whatever. I don't know what you consider it as it is a shoe company. So how do you how did you think about the growth and the, the sort of the initial phases of the brand and what it has become since then? I mean, at first, I didn't really think about it, and I think that's why it was special. Um, I like to think that uh, the way I approached the business from the beginning was. I followed my instincts and I just expressed myself and, and what I enjoyed to do through the brand. And at, at that time in my life, I really liked throwing parties 
I really enjoyed bringing people together at my house and hanging. It was sort of always my my nature. I did not like shopping online. I really enjoyed meeting people, um, and, and you know, I think I think I would have made a really good uh, hotelier, um, and and I would have you know probably been a good restaurant tour. Um, and so I sort of applied uh, kind of a service and hospitality approach to selling shoes. Um, so, you know, I lived in this, I liked spaces. I've always kind of put a, a lot of emphasis on where I lived and um, spent, um, probably spent a disproportionate amount of my income on my house. And so I had rented a cool house and I just said, yeah, let's turn this into a shop. Um, and so it really just kind of came out of me and not, it wasn't a strategic idea. It wasn't in, intended to be um, an experience for the sake of business. It was just how I thought this is how I could sell shoes. And also it's the easiest way to do it for me. You know, I, I had no experience with e-commerce or, um, and, and I, I enjoyed meeting customers and shaking hands and the shoes are quite unique. So I learned a lot about fit. And, um, and so I, I, that now has really become the ethos and the foundation of our brand is, I like to think we sell our shoes. We make them one pair at a time. Every pair is unique, and we sell them one pair at a time. Um, and, and and I think I shook the hands of the first ten thousand customers, and I continue to shake a lot of hands. And everybody at our team really gets to know our customers, which is nice. Yeah, for those of you who haven't gone through this experience, I realize I didn't I didn't sort of give a give a quick intro to what it's like buying a pair of Salas. So you go. Um, in the East Village, uh, they have a, a little shop. Um, it's it's hidden. Uh, you know, you go knock on the door. It's, it's almost like going to someone's apartment. Uh, you show up. It's a beautiful store. You know, Technically, a lot of plant it is life, an apartment. Candles. Technically, it is, a, it is an apartment. I didn't know if we were sharing that or not. No, Technically, okay. it is. He's, 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 uh, Mickey is, is uh, living out the trunk in the, in the purest way possible. Well, um, actually, so you, no, no, as of July, no longer live there. But... It started wow. as well. I lived there for the first four years. I, 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 uh, I moved out. It was. Uh, it became more. It started as a house where we sold shoes, and really, it became a shop I was living in, and then it just became too much of a shop. Um, but, but I think the. I think people. I think that it, it's obviously it's all my furniture, and it was designed as a home, and it. Um, and so when you walk in, you think it's a home first, and it it is in a lot. Of, we call it Saba House, and host people as if everybody's treated kind of as if they're coming into our house, and. Uh, you know, a lot of customers will they'll buy a pair of shoes, but they'll stay an hour, sometimes longer. And, and it's not uncommon on a Saturday to see a lot of people sitting around on the couch, hanging out, having drinks, wearing their sabas. They, they walked in wearing them or got their new pair, or this is the first time they getting their first pair. Um, but it's it's uh, we've built a nice community, and I think it's it's, it's hard to to, to to put it into words. But I, I, you know, a lot of I think companies, big ones now, are focused on building a community you know, much later in the game. Um, we just sort of did it um, by accident or just through the nature of selling things in a just very personal way, and just with putting a lot of good energy into it and not really worrying about the strategy of it all. Um, and I think people just, you know, in this day and age where everything's so connected and therefore disconnected, people really appreciate um, just, I don't know, having a nice slow experience when they buy. Right, I would say I would say it's not necessarily optimized for the transaction like most stores are. It's more optimized for the experience, how you feel when you leave. Yeah, I, um, I think people, and I think that feeds into the feeds into the transactional element of the business. And I think it's a really good 
virtuous cycle. And part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because the customer experience is so unique. You never walk in there without sort of talking about it on the way out. Right. Um, and it's so impressive that you said you shook, shook the hands of your first 10,000 or so customers. I don't know if there's a business in the world that could say that today. Um, and I think that's pretty incredible. Uh, and you mentioned uh, uh, sort of along the lines of the brand, you refer to yourself as the Saba dealer rather than, you know, the Saba seller or the founder and CEO. You've come to be known as, as the Saba dealer, which I think, you know, is, is in part because of this sort of out of the trunk style of selling. Right. How did you come up with that? How did you decide on the Saba dealer? It's a good question. I, uh, you know, I think, um, in building the brand initially, one thing I appreciated about it was, you know, we're, we're really accessible and we're, we're not like a cool kids brand, but I like the idea of things being a little enigmatic and, um, and I liked the idea of, you know, the other piece of it is when we started, we could only make 200 pairs of shoes in a month, if that, uh, so, so to, to slow sell them and to sell them in a way that was very personal, was fun and kind of fit our supply chain. Um, and, and just, you know, I like the idea of someone sort of dealing the shoes, you know, where it, it wasn't just like a traditional exchange, um, like the name. Yeah, I think taking that's uh, that's the epitome of taking a disadvantage and turning it into an advantage. Oh, you know, we can only get two hundred of these a month. Let's uh, let's start adding to the experience because otherwise we're just sort of twiddling our thumbs while we sell these. Right. And then, sort of uh, intentionally or unintentionally, you end up with um, very loyal customers that want to talk about their experience there. And which gets me into my next question: Where where are you having success finding customers? Good questions. I mean, our, our, we've never, I mean, aside from sort of messing around with it, we've never paid for an ad. We've never um, really pushed too hard on influencer or celebrity or that kind of realm. We've had a lot of press, which has been great. But our most of our customers have come through word of mouth. And I think um, sh- you know, we, at the end of the day, we make a really great pair of shoes. And without a great product, all that stuff's, that stuff's all very, sh- you know, all the fun and the events and the nice way of selling is pretty short-lived so we have a great pair of shoes and then when you combine that with um an experience uh, of buying that's really unique and i think also you know I, I genuinely really really just care about what we do and i enjoy meeting our customers and everybody that works for us does too it's just a really genuine brand um composed of people that all more or less started as customers i think everybody just about started as a customer and as a friend so it's if you have a really like a family, uh, I'd say it feels like a small family. I would say Saba's not a startup. It's always been like a small family business since the beginning. Um, that combination lends to uh, someone goes into work on Monday after coming by on Saturday. They're wearing their new red Sabas and they have a great story to tell. You know, it's a great pair of shoes. They're comfortable. They're unique looking. Plus, there's this great house in the East Village where you could buy them. So that, I think that combination, you know, after a few months of doing it, I recognize, oh, this is actually like a pretty, you know, albeit slow and there's a lot faster of ways to grow a brand. I think this has real staying power. Um, it has the ability to, you know, I never raised any money to do this. We just hustled it. So um, it was it was a nice, slow and thoughtful way to build a business um, with word of mouth and, and really getting to know customers. And so it's word of mouth. And then we, we pretty quickly started traveling with the brand. So after about nine months of, selling just out of the East Village, out of the, sh- out of the house. We didn't have a website for the first nine months. 
then I started, we had Instagram and, and then I started traveling and doing pop-ups all over the country. And our approach was similar. We'd Airbnb houses or rent hotel rooms and convert them into, we called it like Saba and residence. So a temporary Saba house and hosted people in the exact same way. And it was all word of mouth. And I, you know, just by nature of traveling and, you know, having a good network, I had a lot of friends in every city and I'd really encourage them to come and, you know, we'd sell maybe 30 pairs in a weekend. So at that time that felt like a ton. Um, but we just, you know, little by little went to all these cities and cultivated these same communities all over the country, you know, so now when we go back to DC, um, you know, it's like a, a huge, it feels like a big Saba family reunion. Um, and you know, hundreds of people are showing up, but all that kind of network effects of each other and or Instagram now has become a big piece of it. Of course, we don't have a, I think our following's a lot smaller than the size of our business, but it's a really like a strong following with cares. And when we post that we're in a city, everybody tags their friends that are in that city. So it's a sort of digital word of mouth um, that works for us. And then the last piece is because our, you know, we got a lot of press early on, which is really powerful. Um, just again, we didn't really go after it. Um, but, uh, just by nature of how we, we did what we did. Was there was there any one story in particular that, that you feel really sort of put um, you on in the press? You know, um, I don't think our business has ever had like a, a day where it went from, you know, you know, or a roller coaster to a big spot from, you know, we've, we've had, you know, big pops of press. We've never had anything that totally changed the dynamic. Um, but, the you know, the first piece of press we ever got was in a, publication called pure wow which is it's a nice publication i wouldn't say it's the you know premier thing but it has a huge following and a great readership and they wrote a really simple piece about how they were great shoes and that's when we first started getting email and it went national we got emails from all over the country how do i get your shoes how do i get your shoes so that's what took us from being a little east village shop serving a local community to having interest from all over the country and we had to build, I, I made a PDF and an email process to order. So I wanted to keep it personal. So you still had to buy shoes. You had to email, talk with me, hear some story. And it was a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, I was writing like hundreds of emails every day. And then um, Inside Hook, a guy named Danny Agnew wrote a really great article about us in March, which is kind of the men's version of Pure Wow with a little more fashion in New York to it. And that brought a lot of business. And he wrote a really great article. He was the first person to really capture the essence of what we were doing in the East Village. Uh, and then then the big one was New York Times. T Magazine did a like an online piece about our, our Saba Sunday events, which put us on the map in a big way. And then the only other one that really counted, a lot of the press has, but uh, we were in Gear Patrol which I'd never heard of, but they did a really detailed sort of documentary style piece on us with a video that has continued to um, send a lot of folks our way. Well, the incredible thing about your business is, is you couldn't at that time, at least you couldn't have a giant, giant spike in orders because you know the online ordering wasn't, wasn't really right. available. Exactly. And, and also um, this, so it's only as, chain wasn't ready. We, yeah, go you know, on. we were running like a 12 to 16 week uh, wait time. Yeah, so it's really only as many people as you can fit in the door and only as many people as shoes you can make, right. um, which in, in a lot of cases is every founder's dream. Like, you know, you have a lot of control over your customer. You have a lot of control over the experience. And the other thing is you have input from your customers. So have you ever, you know, have your customer conversations, your literal conversations person to person, 
have they ever impacted your decision making on the product side or colors or you know future product offerings? Oh, it was a huge thing. I mean, we I think our shoe was in R and D more or less for the first three years. So when we first started, the, when I, the first 150 pairs I made were all one one width and one one style. So it was all basically men's shoes. And the feedback, you know, I, I saw that a bunch of I thought only men would want to get a lot of women coming to buy the shoes didn't look great so that's what inspired us to do a women's shoe we got feedback about you know the high I mean, yes every single thing we ever did to the shoe was based on customer feedback mixed with you know my own aesthetically with colors and things it was more me but um i would see how they i'd watch every single fitting and say okay like these shoes are gapping a little too much uh, the rubber doesn't look clean enough i'd pay attention to what customers paid attention to and every single shipment we received for the first three years i documented every aspect, every shipment and would build the PDF and send it all to the workshop and have them refine, refine, refine. Um, so the shoes are a really far cry, you know, now we're making thousands of shoes every month. Um, but in all, you know, 99% of them arrive, 90.9% of them arrive. Perfect. We were making three or 400 pairs a month before 60% of them were arriving. Perfect. You know, I was, tra- I wasn't trashing, but I was not, uh, you know, uh, we were not keeping every pair of shoes. And it was it was a real struggle. And what's the what's the demo breakdown now? Male female? Uh, probably like I don't know. It's probably sixty forty female to male. I, I I think the customer base is pretty evenly split between men and women. But women buy more shoes, so we sell like two to one women's shoes to men's shoes. Okay. And what about you mentioned you you were you, you mentioned you were bootstrapped from from the early days. What uh, that's a challenge in itself. What what sort of challenges did you face sort of in the founding days of the business? Um, good question. I mean, you know, from a generally speaking, I think we faced all the kind of typical challenges of just you know, setting up processes and, and as things grew, staying organized. Um, that's definitely not my strong suit. Um, I was very good at selling and hustling and not always keeping everything organized in the back end. Um, you know, funding has gotten tricky from time to time. Um, and, and we, you know, we always just sort of sold and managed through it. Um, you know, I think hiring and staffing gets harder and harder as you grow. But in the early days, you know, I think it was, I'd say the early days, let me, the hardest part was managing customer expectations and learning how to do that. That's probably the best way to sum it up. So, um, you know, we would make shoes and I had a shipment that was supposed to be there four weeks from now and they would arrive 16 weeks later because they got stuck in customs for eight weeks you know, so we, we, you know, we had a lot of people that were making shoes for on a promise and an expectation and learning how to manage that and, um, and storytell around it was very important because always nothing was late because of any bad intent. It was usually late because of some crazy story with Turkey. And I did a really good job of communicating that to customers and being proactive and, and making it part of the journey. We lost a few customers along the way, of course, but I think people appreciated the raw honesty of it all. And, because they were buying direct from me and then they were hearing from me and they were seeing pictures of me in Turkey and sharing them like, Hey, this is the update. You know, uh, that was a big lesson for me early on is just 
how to handle customer service and, and how to and how to think about that, especially as you're growing and you're not and you're not necessarily um, you know you don't have a big team and you don't have a lot of process in place. And was there ever a moment anywhere in the process where you were thinking, oh, I should I shouldn't have quit, you know, I, I should go back to my private equity job. What, what nah, am I doing? I, I, I never thought about that. That's awesome. I liked and, it too much. Yeah, it seems like you're having a blast. That's part of, and that's part of the brand also, and that's part of the Saba dealer persona is like this this guy who's just traveling, who uh, you know wears these beautiful leather shoes, and you know come be part of the ride. And I think that's a lot of the value of your brand is you. Um, was there? Uh, and what what about what about competition? You know, the footwear space in general is is very competitive. We've had, um, you know, we've had all birds on the show. We've had M Jemmy on the show. How are you building a moat to create some separation in, in the products that you're building? Um, you know, I'd say, and I don't mean this in any sort of a rash, we don't think a lot about competition. Um, I think we're, I think Saba stands pretty independent. Um, not to say that people don't choose other shoes over Saba, but I don't feel like we're competing directly against anyone. Uh, with that said, uh, I, I, you know, my sort of way to think about this is in the world today, there are a lot of great products, you know, it's, and it's, I think products, Saba's are really, are, are, are one of the unique products out there. And there, there are a lot of unique products, but it's become fairly commoditized, like taking a product, you know, finding an artisan or unique product in the world, getting it produced and manufactured and getting it to New York to sell is not the hardest process in the world anymore. One, two, uh, creating an interesting, at least creating the facade. A lot of brands I think are just facades today, but creating the facade of a brand is not very hard with a great website and a beautiful uh, story that where the, the founders read like the most interesting people in the world that are saving the world and all that stuff's pretty easy to do. Finding money isn't so hard. Uh, so I think what's left when you talk about a moat is just really good personal service. Um, so I think Saba's, um, you know, we've, we've done that really well. We've, uh, with our customers, we've established great relationships that have now lasted over five years. And, you know, it's the people that bought from us on, you know, day one to 100 or more or less still buying from us today. And everybody that's bought from us in the last year is continuing to buy into the future. And so we're just really focused on building a strong recurring customer base uh, through obviously making a great pair of shoes, but then through delivering it with good service that's really personal and genuine and cares. Uh, so I, I, I think service is where we always will stand apart. I think too, you know, people are, our brand resonates with people because if you scroll through our Instagram, people often tell me it feels like I'm looking at a friend's Instagram. And that's because, well, we are friends with a lot of our customers. And if you look at our Instagram, there's very little um, content for the sake of, I mean, we create, obviously, we think about what pictures we're going to post and we take pictures to create content, but all of it's pretty authentic. You know, we're not hiring models. We're not uh, creating a lot of fake scenes with an effort to you know, induce a feeling, you know, it's our Instagram is us and our team traveling and doing our thing, our customers, pictures of our shoes in our workshop, pictures of our friends, pictures of our girlfriends and boyfriends and our, you know, in our, in our, in our old shoes and new shoes. And, you know, every once in a while, something beautiful we see along the way. And then, 
you know, from time to time, we'll do an actual campaign where we just get artistic and creative and try to put something out to the world that people think is beautiful. But we're, we're really not trying to, uh, you know, we're not, um, you know, posing on beaches and, uh, you know, doing kind of silly stuff. Uh, we just, we do, you know, we're just pretty real with it. Yeah. And I think that definitely shows, uh, on your Instagram for those of you that don't follow Mickey or follow Saba's, I think it's the Saba dealer on Instagram, right? Correct. Yeah. And you know, and the funny thing is sometimes we will post a really beautiful photo that's styled out and looks like, you know, it's either a model or like a, not a model, but like, we'll we'll capture someone in the street wearing Saba's and they, you know, it looks like a street style photo and those never perform well on our Instagram, no matter how beautiful the person or how cool the style or how well shot it is. People just really like to see us and our customers and what we're up to and, and shoes and, and travel. And that's about it. So all, all that other stuff. So the beauty of it is it's not very expensive to produce. So from a business perspective, it's really nice. You know, the best performing shots are ones where I walk out to the street, put a pair of shoes on the ground and just take them with really nice light or take a picture of us and the team and share that. Um, so you, you know, our, our marketing, uh, our marketing uh, department is pretty slim because we don't do a lot of marketing, I don't think. Do you remember, usually I ask this question, do you remember the first time you saw your product out in the wild, not on a friend, not on an employee, not on a family member? In your case, you literally shook hands with the first 10,000 customers. Do you remember the first time you saw Saba's out on the street on someone you didn't recognize? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, or have you yet? Oh, I, it happens all the time now. You know, now the brand, because of all the shops and the e-commerce, um, somebody knows the people, somebody in our company knows everybody that's buying for the most part. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty well spread. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I'd say or, like... Or maybe for you, maybe for you, it was, a, it was sort of a different aha moment. But, but was there ever a, you know, a moment where, you know, this feels like this is really working. This is getting bigger than, bigger than me. Mm. I think that that feeling has happened when, um, you know, in the last two years, the business has changed a lot where we're, we're, we're quite a bit bigger of a team. Um, and we started having events, you know, our, I think I noticed that when we, the highest, uh, revenue generating travel event we ever had, I was not part of. So that means to me that the brand has grown, uh, beyond me needing to be there. And, and, um, and that means we're doing something right from a, a team and product and energy perspective. What city was that in? Or was it a full road trip? Washington, D.C. That's right. And what does your what does your day to day look like now? What is a typical day uh, in the life of Mickey Ashmore? Um, every day is pretty different. Um, it's a lot of. Uh, just sort of coordinating across, you know, we are, we're four shops now and we're about to be five once we open our shop in Amagansett this summer. So it's a lot of just coordinating all the shops and all the activities. You know, we luckily, we luckily everybody, our business feels like a lot of people operating independently towards a common goal. Um, and each shop is sort of its own little mini business. So it's sort of me commenting and, 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 uh, and, and helping manage all those processes I still do the majority of the Instagram um, and I write all the emails that go out to customers. So I kind of handle all the outward communications that I really like to storytell. And I think the voice is important that we put out to the world. So I spend a lot of time 
on that. Um, and then I, sometimes I spend a lot of time doing, I don't know what I'm doing. I sort of wonder what am I doing today? Um, and then I still spend time, you know, I still travel. I, I love to travel and be out on the road and meet with customers. I like being in the shops when I can. Um, but it's, a, it's become a, an increasing amount of planning and managing um, with a big part of it being sort of driving the, the storytelling and the sort of the vision and then that piece. And then, um, you know, I get out to Turkey a couple of times a year, which is probably the highlight of it all. Is there anything fun you do out in Turkey? Like what are the highlights of going to Turkey? You know, we, we, um, for the first four and a half years, we operated out of a small workshop in Gaziantep. It was, uh, I think it was like a 600 year old house in Gaziantep is one of the oldest cities in the world. And the team went from five or six guys to 25 in that house. And then in, uh, late last year, we, well, the, the family we work with, you know, we're their sole customer and they're our sole provider. I mean, it's, it's tightly, tightly linked and we're more or less vertically integrated with them. Uh, you know, thanks to the growth of the business and our sort of pushing them and, and the partnership, we purchased a new building in downtown Gaziantep, just a few doors down actually, but a brand new building to, to shift and house all the, all the production because, um, you know, we just needed a bigger space. It's healthier, it's cleaner. It results in, you know, better efficiency and a better product just by having the guys in a, in a, in a more spacious environment. So we opened that up in February. So I flew in for the opening and I hadn't been back to Turkey in a year. Um, because there's a lot of things that happened last year, both on our business and then with Turkey that just prevented me from going. And, uh, you know, the, just seeing how much the workshop had grown and, uh, seeing how, you know, it, you know, if you, if you look at our Instagram, it's, there's rarely a photo where someone's not smiling and, um, to see all the smiles and the, the good energy and happiness that is coming out of the shop in Gaziantep where these guys are making shoes and, um, almost some of the workers in our workshop have been in the shoe business for 30 or 40 years. So they're like 50, 60 years old and their sons are now for the first time wanting to get involved with their dad's business because there's something really, uh, there's some promise for it all. You know, this, you know, the growth of Saba, the amount of money we're investing, how well we pay, you know, the, the potential of that brand, you know, everybody wants to get involved again. So it's, it's really beautiful to see and um, it's been really heartwarming. And, you know, some of the guys have been with us for five years and have gone from, you know, you know, we had a guy that sews uh, all the uppers of the shoes named Ali. And now he has his own room and kind of his own workshop and team that he manages. And he's just super happy. Um, so it's just really delightful to be there. And, of course, then eating. Gazintep is famous for its food. So we eat a lot. And what's the uh, – there's a lot of art, you know – there's an artisan element and a lot of craftsmanship that goes into the shoes. Um, on the worker's side, what, you know, what is a, you know, the best shoemaker in your, in your factory, what, how many pairs of shoes can they make in a day versus the, the sort of newbie who's just learning? Well, good question. So there's no one person that takes the shoe from A to Z to completion. It's, you know, we have different folks that focus on different steps the most complicated step, well, the most unique step that's the hardest to do is the stitching. So this, so Sabas are unique because of the materials we use and then they're all handmade, but the, and then the, the way that the sole is stitched, there's one heavy cotton string that runs around the entire base of the sole that holds the shoe together. And that type of stitching is really rare. I mean, you don't really see it outside of Turkey and really outside of these few workshops in Gaziantep. 
ours being sort of the most well-renowned and, and oldest. Um, and uh, that process takes, you know, anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half a pair, depending on the size of this pair and the skill of the stitcher. When we started, we were just one stitcher, and his name was uh, Jim Dikiji. Dikiji means shoe stitcher in Turkish. So he was a fifth generation shoe stitcher. And when we started, uh, you know, after a few months of doing this and struggling to get shoes, I recognized this would always be our biggest bottleneck. So Saba um, agreed to fund a program to train more stitchers. And now we're six with a handful in training at any given time. Um, and, and Jim sort of led all that training. But so, sti- so, so Jim, who actually is no longer with us, um, he moved to Germany because he just wanted to move on and out. He was a younger guy. Um, you know, the best stitchers can stitch 20 to 25 pairs in a day on a really good day. And then, you know, some guys are stitching 10 to 12 pairs. And moving on to sort of the the future of the business, what do you envision for the future of Saba? You're about five years old. I think you recently had your five-year anniversary. What does the next five look like? Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I think um, it looks like a lot more of the same. Um, So I think we got a good thing going. We enjoy how we do business. We're making great shoes. Um, It's it's working well. So that means... uh, you know, doing what we're doing and doing it more and just continuing to, ref- to do it better um, and, and growing the team. So probably opening a few more stores, um, really refining our, you know, we're continuing to travel and do bigger and more interesting uh, sort of residencies or pop-ups. We, you know, our online business is really growing. So we're really building out our, our, our e-commerce platform and, and the storytelling online. Um, and I think just continuing to do that and grow the team and find good people to work with us and open stores and movement, you know, and continue to travel around with the brand. Um, you know, we've, we're, we talk a lot about, uh, producing more third, more goods, you know, other accessories that would complement um, what we do. It's, it's taken me a year and a half to develop a belt. So I don't know what's wrong with me if we'll ever do it. Um, uh, and then, um, you know, beyond that, I think, uh, I don't know, it'd be fun one day to open some Saba shops abroad. We'll see what we get to. And what advice would you have for someone getting into the consumer goods space today? Uh, What do you wish someone had told you in in 2012, 2013? So wishing what someone had told me, uh, don't spend too much. I probably uh, could have been a little bit more financially diligent early on. Um, but I think, uh, I don't think that's the advice I'd give somebody else. I think what I would tell someone else is, um, you know, I, I, I think, um, really trying to, I think the interesting way to build a brand is for it to really represent yourself and some values of yourself. So to really understand what those are and put those forward as a brand is, is what makes that, – that's what to me makes actually makes something a brand. I think there's a lot of great businesses out there that purport to be lifestyle brands, but the lifestyle brand is really just manufactured for the sake of selling the product. So if you really want to be a brand, you're willing to do businesses are very different things, and they can often – they can obviously come together. But if you really want to build a brand with a lot of soul and authenticity, you really got to think about yourself and your values and what's interesting to you and put that out to the world. And I think that's how a lot of brands were built in the past. I think today a lot of brands are really built 
really as businesses first, brands second, and, and I think Saba's the other way around, and that's why people love it. I think just keeping that in mind and kind of being true to what you're really doing um, is important. Okay, so now I got some fun ones uh, to finish up here. What cool. What's your favorite color, Saba? Favorite color, Saba, is... Um, God, what can I have? You know, good question. My favorite colored Saba is... I don't have an answer to that question. I love them all. What's on your feet right now? <laughs> Leopard. Leopard, okay. What would you be doing if you weren't selling shoes? Uh, I'd be writing. I'd be a journalist. I'd try to be a journalist. If you could pick any spokesperson to represent the Saba brand other than yourself, who would it be? Oh, man, that's a great question. Other than myself... Could be an Barack egg. Obama. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Barack, if you're listening, I know you're an avid listener. Yeah, you, we got some business to do. Um, if you if you got to send one tweet or Instagram from, you know, the biggest from Justin Bieber's account, what would you say? What would I say? I'd say. Y'all should stop following. This is a waste of your time. <laughs> if, uh, let me reframe that. If if you got one tweet or Instagram from the largest uh, Instagram Instagram or Twitter account in the world, um, I would. Um, I think I would share Sabas, and I'd share a really lovely, high energetic, and happy photo about it. Gotta make sure. Uh, gotta make sure you have the inventory when you do that. Come find us. Um. And I asked this one to M. Jemmy as well. If if Phil Knight sort of fancies himself the shoe dog, what shoe animal are you? That's a great question. You know, I would be the shoe shepherd. Oh, that's a great one. Like a shepherd dog, though. And along similar lines, what would you call your autobiography? You mentioned that your backup career would be a writer of some sort. Uh... I will tell you what the uh, subtitle would be, How to Win Customers Through Making Mistakes. Oh, that's a great subtitle. I'm buying that book right now. I'm, I'm, pre, I'm pre-ordering that. It's on Amazon. Um, and then is there any news you want to break or anything else you want to plug? Uh, no, I just think if uh, anybody is listening, and well, I'm sure people are listening, if they'd like to be in touch, shoot me an email. It's mickey at saba.am, and we'd love to hear from you and host you for a pair of shoes in any one of our shops. Yeah, if you thought we were kidding about sort of uh, Mickey's obsession with customers, he just gave his real email address over a podcast, and he doesn't know how big the listenership is. So shouts to <laughs> Shouts to that. That was, uh, that's incredible of you. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. Fun. And, uh, this was a lot of fun, Mickey. Thank you so much for coming on again. I'm a huge fan of the shoes. I wear them, uh, frequently for anyone who knows me. They're incredibly comfortable. They look great. They're very unique looking as well, uh, which is hard to find sort of in the, in the market. Um, and they work with formal or casual wear. Um, and yeah, I also want to thank, um, Lindsay Baker, my sister-in-law, and Chris Cahill, who who turned me on to Saba That's in the right. first place, I remember those two for sure. Yeah, <laughs> um, a few years ago, and and you know they've been uh, they've been I've been a fan ever since. So thank you to them, and thank you to you, Mickey. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Billy. Thanks for having me. 
thank you everyone for listening uh thank you mickey for coming on the show and everyone rate and subscribe it makes a huge difference and yeah have a wonderful rest of your week thanks again